From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Prison is storage for human beings. That's what it is. And it's the easiest issue in the world not to care about until it happens to either you or someone you care about. That's Jason Goldfarb. He's kind of an unusual guest for the show. He's a former lawyer who was prosecuted for insider trading by my old office at the Southern District of New York when I was the U.S. attorney. He joins me to talk about the experience of being prosecuted, pleading guilty, going to prison, and then building his life after prison. It's part three in our series on how the criminal justice system works. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Stay Tuned is sponsored by Betterment. Look, I'm a lawyer, and I know the value of expert advice. When you're dealing with the law, you want the best attorney you can find. And when you're investing, you want a top-notch financial advisor. That's where Betterment comes in. Betterment offers personalized expert advice to help you hit your investing goals. Betterment is the largest online financial advisor. Its mission is to help you make the most of your money. Their simple tools help people build wealth, plan for retirement, and stay on target. You pay one low transparent management fee no matter who you are or how much money you invest. And now, Stay Tuned with Preet listeners can get up to one year managed free. For more information, visit Betterment.com slash Preet. That's Betterment.com slash Preet. Now let's get to your questions. Hi, Preet. This is Margaret McIntosh in Tucson, Arizona. Great show. It's really saving my sanity. My question is, how do you as a prosecutor handle a witness whose testimony is disjointed, contradictory, or even incoherent? I'm sure you understand why I'm asking this. But more broadly, what if someone's testimony is difficult to parse or even to understand? Thanks again. Bye. Uh, Thanks, Margaret, for your question. This comes up all the time. People are human beings, and witnesses are human beings. And sometimes they don't make a lot of sense, and sometimes it takes some effort to get them to tell a coherent story. So you take your witnesses as you find them. And if you're talking about a witness who's going to be brought to trial to testify against some other person, prosecutors and agents all the time have to make the determination of whether or not the witness is going to be somebody that the jury can follow, understand, but most importantly, someone that the jury is going to believe. I mean, I put on a witness at my first trial who was basically the most important precipient witness to the crime And she was a drug addict. She had taken drugs at the time that she witnessed the crime taking place. But she was a believable, credible witness. And it was not always easy to follow what she was saying. But I think there was no doubt that she was telling the truth. And when you piece together her testimony with other people's testimony and other documents and photographs and other things, you can end up telling a coherent story. So it's the job of the prosecutor to take someone whose discussion of an event or an incident is disjointed, it doesn't make a lot of sense necessarily because they're not so articulate, to make that articulate to the jury. On the other hand, it's a very different story if the person's testimony is incoherent and contradictory because they're not telling the truth or because their memory is terrible. On those occasions, you might think about not calling that witness at all. If, on the other hand, you're not talking about a witness, but you're talking about what prosecutors think of the coherence of somebody they may want to charge, I don't think we care too much about that. The facts are what the facts are, and the target of the investigation is not being called as a witness at trial. In fact, they have a constitutional right not to speak at all. Hi, Preet. This is Marsha from Naperville, Illinois. 
I just finished listening to part two of your criminal justice series, which I really enjoy. Thank you very much for doing it. Um, it reminded me of something I've always wanted to know. When a jury decides in favor of a criminal defendant, they say not guilty, do police or FBI or prosecutors then begin to search for the real guilty party? If not, why not? And if the defense has found legitimate holes in the prosecution's case, does the answer change? Um, I've always wanted to know this, and I hope that you'll answer. Uh, Marcia, thanks for your question. It's an interesting way of asking the question. You have to keep in mind that prosecutors are supposed to bring cases that they believe are righteous to bring. So in my office, our view was you had to personally have a incredibly strong belief that the person you were prosecuting was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, and even a higher standard than that. Otherwise, you don't proceed. So you believe you have the right guilty party. Sometimes, because of the system we have, the defense works, or a jury nullifies, or a jury just doesn't see it your way, and they acquit, and may find the defendant not guilty. And this might be hard to understand, but that does not mean that the person wasn't guilty, necessarily. It does not mean that the prosecutors think that there's some other person who committed the robbery or the murder or the fraud because the jury found the defendant not guilty. It could be for a variety of reasons. There was insufficient evidence. We didn't you know, meet the bar of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So it's not like sort of a reverse OJ situation where when OJ was found to be not guilty, he said he was going to spend the rest of his days looking for the actual guilty party, which I don't believe he even did either. Of course, at any point in a prosecution, if the prosecutors and the agents believe that they have the wrong person, even before there's a not guilty verdict, or if the not guilty verdict provokes them to think that they had the wrong person for some reason, because the defense put on a credible case that there was someone else who committed the crime, then absolutely agents and prosecutors look for the person who committed the crime. But the mere fact that a particular jury may have found someone not guilty for a variety of reasons, it doesn't mean necessarily, it sounds odd to say, but it doesn't mean that the prosecutors credit that determination and go look for some non-existent alternate defendant. This next question comes from a tweet from Rocky Mountain Love. Preet Bharara, is there a way in the future to remove lifetime appointees if they prove to be unfair, unconstitutional, or unlawful in their jobs or personal lives? Hashtag ask Preet. Well, I presume you're talking about the federal judiciary because those are the people who have lifetime appointments in the United States of America. If they prove to be unfair or they don't discharge their duties properly and they violate the Constitution or they break the law, there are various remedies. They can be prosecuted. They can be impeached. You know, the Constitution doesn't provide only for impeachment of the President of the United States, even though that's what people are talking about lately. Judges can be impeached and have been impeached. It's a very high bar, but it can happen. But a lifetime appointment is meant to be a permanent appointment so that the judiciary can have independence from political wins, public pressure, just to do the right thing according to the oath. Here's another question that comes via tweet from Brandon. At Preet Bharara, thanks for your great podcast. If Manafort flips on Monday, provides useful evidence to Mueller on Tuesday, and is pardoned on Wednesday, can the prosecutors still use the information they get from Manafort? That's an interesting question uh, for a couple of reasons. First, generally speaking, if you have a witness who is given information, that's great, that's terrific. You can follow the leads, see where the evidence takes you. They tell you that there's money hidden under a rock somewhere in a forest. You can go find the money. You can bring that money into evidence at trial. But if the person is going to testify about things that happened, you need to be able to put that witness on the stand. So if for some reason someone is unable to testify 
it's hard to use that evidence at trial, even though you can use the information. Now, the spirit of your question and the spirit of a lot of people's questions about the effect of a pardon on someone's availability to testify points up an issue that people don't focus on too much. Either way, Paul Manafort would be testifying at trial in the two scenarios that you mentioned. First, if he was providing useful evidence, presumably pursuant to a cooperation agreement in the hopes of leniency, he would be testifying according to an arrangement, you know, a deal between him, his lawyers, and the prosecutors. But one effect of the pardon is it removes you from jeopardy, meaning that you no longer have, in most instances, the ability to claim that you don't want to testify on the basis that you would be incriminating yourself because you basically don't have any exposure for the crime that you may have committed because you have been pardoned. So in all these instances, you know, there's this, there's this interesting balance that's taking place that a president who's being advised properly may not be out of the soup if he pardons someone because the one thing that maybe he has going for him is that people who are being investigated and prosecuted don't want to testify because they would be incriminating themselves. But if you remove the possibility of being prosecuted, then you also remove their ability to invoke the great protection we have in the Constitution under the Fifth Amendment, right against self-incrimination. So if, if Paul Manafort no longer was in trouble because he had been pardoned and he had useful information, it might not matter that he has a cooperation agreement or not. The Mueller team could require him to testify in the grand jury or at a trial, and he would have very little basis to resist testifying. Before we get to the interview, I just wanted to make one comment about what I said at the end of the show last week about patriotism and God bless America and knowing the words. We got a lot of response. I had a lot of people email, a lot of people tweet about it. I felt strongly about what I was saying last week, and I'm glad that other people feel strongly about it too. We did receive a lot of calls, but there's one in particular that I thought tells a great story. Listen to this. Hi, Preet. Steve Tracy from Connecticut. Thanks for the wonderful story about singing God Bless America to your children after 9-11. Here's another story about that song. In 1996, my wife and I and a few other Americans were invited to dinner with a Ukrainian family in a small village outside of Kiev. After dinner and some drinking, the family began singing folk songs. Even though we didn't speak the language, the music was beautiful. After a few minutes, our host asked, and now let's hear something from the Americans. So we began singing God Bless America, and to our surprise, everyone around the table joined in, in English. Here we were in a land that had, until just a few years earlier, been part of the Soviet Union. And these people knew our song in our language. When we finished singing, our host continued into the second verse. But when they noticed that we did not know the words, they stopped and warmly applauded us. What an extraordinary night. Thanks, Preet. I enjoy the show. My guest today is Jason Goldfarb. In 2009, he was indicted by my old office, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, for his role in what wound up becoming one of the biggest insider trading cases in modern times. That was the case involving giant hedge fund, the Galleon Group, led by Galleon founder Rod Rajaratnam. Jason ultimately pled guilty to conspiracy and securities fraud, and he was sentenced to three years in prison. We talk a lot on the show about the criminal justice system, but hearing from someone who has experienced the system as a defendant is rare. Jason reached out to me in a letter after his release and asked if we could meet. 
I said I could do him one better and invited him to join me on the show. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Stay tuned is sponsored by Simply Safe. Simply Safe is home security done right. We all want to protect our homes and our families. That shouldn't be a chore, and it shouldn't break the bank. And it shouldn't take an engineering degree to set up, which is good, since I only studied law. Simply Safe is a smart home alarm system that's easy to set up and easy to use. You choose the features, hardware, and service that's right for you. Simply Safe has no contracts or hidden fees, and they work hard to earn your business. That's why Simply Safe has gotten an A plus rating with the Better Business Bureau for 10 years running, and they have over 40,000 five star reviews online. Simply Safe is what home security should be. You're getting the best protection, period. Learn more about Simply Safe today at simplysafe.com/preet to protect your home and family with an A plus home security system. Simplysafe.com/preet. Jason Goldfarb, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Are you nervous? I'm a little nervous. How come? Uh, well, you are the U.S. attorney. Was, was, <laughs> was, was. No once upon su- a time. No more subpoena powers. I get it. So you're not as scary as you once were. Um, and you're not under oath. Yes, luckily. And there are no, there are no agents here. <laughs> um, yeah, but it is a little nerve wracking. I've never done a podcast before. I've never spoken about any of this stuff before. I really, it's not something I'm proud of, but I think that someone could learn and not repeat my bad choices. I'm all for that. So I'll tell you a secret. I'm a little nervous too. I was the U.S. attorney for seven and a half years. I was a you know a prosecutor on the line for five years. Hundreds, thousands of defendants were prosecuted by my office when I was there, and I have never sat down personally with someone who was prosecuted by my office, you know, whose indictment had my name on it. So, you know, you're not a typical guest. So I appreciate you know your courage in coming on and having you know a frank discussion about what it was like for you. I think it's maybe that's part of the problem. I think you hinted on it a little bit in your podcast with Judge Rakoff, but I think he said that's part of the problem. And I think one of his suggestions was having judges in the process and maybe having prosecutors more in the plea bargaining process since most cases go to plea bargains. So maybe, you know, today, hopefully you'll come out and you'll have a little different view of me. Yeah, I hope to be educated. Let me explain to the listeners sort of how this came about. I didn't seek you out. I didn't go through the roles of people who were prosecuted by my office and say, you know, bring me Jason Goldfarb. You probably didn't know who I was. Well, no, well, I, I refresh my recollection because it was a significant case at the beginning of my tenure. And we'll get to that in a minute. But you wrote a letter to me. It was a pretty extraordinary letter. And let me just read a little bit of it. It begins like this. My name is Jason Goldfarb. I'm not sure if my name rings a bell, but I was someone who was prosecuted by your office. Please don't be alarmed as I hold no ill will at all toward you or your office, which was gratifying to hear. You aren't turning over to the authorities. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I get, a lot of, I get a lot of crazy mail. And then you wrote this. You said, if it would be possible, I would be honored if you could find a few minutes to meet with me or even allow me to buy you a coffee and see if I could perhaps turn you from someone who prosecuted me to one who can believe in me if you truly do believe in second chances and redemption. And then you had this nice P.S., which was, a, was a, this was a nice touch, Jason. Let me stop you there for one second. Before you go there, we will note that while I do have my opinions, at this moment, the only way for me to get my conviction expunged would be by presidential pardon, right? In this administration, it's probably about a 50-50 chance I could get that to happen, but you could definitely go along and say it. Well, I don't want to prejudice you, but... No, it's okay. This was a nice touch, Jason. You, in the PS, you said, I think the president made a serious error in judgment by firing you 
and this is coming from someone who you prosecuted and sent to prison, so should speak volumes, LOL. Yeah. So I decided to do you one better than a brief meeting with coffee, and we reached out and asked if you would come on the podcast, and you thought about it. I, my first reaction was like, I actually said to the, when we were emailing that I, you know, I physically cringe about thinking my name coming up on Google or, you know, the press writing, because it's usually when the press writes a story, no matter what it is, even though I never say anything, I think I've handled myself, you know, from this time as, as good as anyone can. I've showed respect to anyone involved. I, I'm remorseful and I really mean it that it's just any article that seems to get written always has such negative connotations and they want to call me names that, you know, are hurtful. There are things that I did. You did bad things. I did. But that's not the sum total of you. But it's definitely not. I, I made a, a few bad choices. And for the one time in my life, I said yes to something I should say no to. I, I disappointed myself. I disappointed my family and those who care about me and love me. And that to me is worse than any prison sentence or anything anyone could do is disappointed my mother because I never disappointed my parents before. So let's go back a little bit. Uh, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Brooklyn. Okay. And you decided to become what after college? I decided to become a lawyer. It was either, you know, pitching for the Mets, it didn't work out. Or, you know, I always had an interest in the law. I always liked history from a very young age. I don't know, maybe it was watching, uh, you know, My Cousin Vinny, <laughs> you know, or A Few Good Men. But I always found that exciting and it was always something that I was interested in. And I knew well before, well before high school that right. that's what I wanted to and you, do. And you engaged in the actual practice of law. Absolutely. Uh, I was, and you liked uh, it. I, I was in court basically every day. I really enjoyed it. I think I have, have a bigger appreciation for it now. You know, when it's taken away from you is when you really realize how much, you know, you, you love something. And the part that I really love was dealing with clients. I think I'm a people person. You know, helping these people, like people don't realize, people kind of, you know, sometimes say, oh, it's just workers' compensation, it's not a big deal. But in reality, this is like the people's lives. They, you know, you get a benefits reduced by, you know, $50, they can't feed their family. So, so you're a lawyer for a period of time, you love it, you're practicing every day, you're in court all the time, as you say. And then in the fall of 2009, on a particular November morning, your life changes. Absolutely. What happened? So what happened was, is that, you know, I was in my apartment and it was early in the morning and I'm not a morning person to begin it's with. probably around 6 a.m. Right around 6 a.m. That's what the FBI does. Yes. And there's this banging and banging and we don't know what it is. It's scary. It's almost like someone's trying to break into the apartment. No one's identified And you had themselves. no idea. No idea. And, um. Did you have any idea, you don't have to say, but do you have any idea that you might be in jeopardy? Because remember three weeks before we announced charges against a number of people we accused of insider trading. And then, then three weeks later, it's this morning, there's banging on your door. Did you have any idea what it might be about? No, and the reason probably being is just because I'm not here to talk negatively about anyone or anything like that, but the lead person in that case, it's almost like I didn't, I didn't know what he was up to in reality. And literally, so what's happening is, is there's this banging downstairs and me, being the person who never gets in trouble or anything like that. You know what I did? I called the police. <laughs> so I'm not kidding. I literally called 911 and they said, all right, we'll send someone there. Finally, like five minutes later, someone shows up, NYPD. Then I open the door and there's literally like 15 agents with their guns drawn for me. With the cops? Yeah, the cops. Okay. You know, see, it was kind of funny because the hallway is very small. So literally there wasn't enough room to fit everyone. 
they were pouring out the steps. It was, it was, a, it was a scene and it was scary. My wife, so what'd you do? I got dressed and we were off. Did you understand what it was about when you realized they were FBI agents? Well, yeah, I, I realized that it was probably about this. I thought there'd be a discussion. I figured they'd probably want me to cooperate, but there was no discussion like that. And then we, you know, it was, my life was never the same since. So what happened after you got arrested? Where'd you go? We were in a car on the FDR drive and then press was already there, which, you know, that's an issue that I take a little umbrage with. Yeah, they shouldn't have been. Yeah. I think it, it's a problem. I don't think that's fair. Like, listen, I'm not reiterating. I did something wrong. And let me get that clear throughout our entire conversation. I'm never trying to make excuses. I'm just trying to give you context and explain a little bit where I'm coming mm -hmm. from. It didn't need to be like that. I would have happily turned myself in and came down there. I understand there's a job yeah. to done. It's just, to me, it's unnecessary. In your view, it's excessive. It's excessive. So ex explain what it is. We'll get to it later. I don't want to belabor it, but what, what was the thing that you did that caused you to be arrested? I said yes to something I should have said no to and something that I said no to in the past, where it was presented years before. And that was the opportunity to engage in insider trading conspiracy? It was to be the go-between between these two sets of people. And yes, obviously, if you're part of a conspiracy, you get charged with it. Yeah. And the one set of people are folks who had access to inside information about companies, mergers and acquisitions. And then the other side, one or more people who were at a hedge fund who could make a profit on that, and then you would share in some of that profit. Yes. Which is insider trading. Yes. And you're, you're a trained lawyer at the time. Never in that field. I'm a novice. And also it's funny that I'm part of the, one of the biggest insider trading cases in history, yet I've literally never owned a stock in my entire life. Literally. And yet you did this. Yeah. And you, you knew you shouldn't have done this. Yes. So what are you thinking after you got arrested? Like, how are you thinking it's going to play out? Do you, have a, do you have a sense yet? Do you have a lawyer? How'd you get a lawyer? Well, it's the one thing I said to, you know, my girlfriend at the time that was there was, whatever you do, don't call my parents. And of course, when we get arraigned, my parents are sitting there. So your first thought was, what are my parents going to think? Uh, yeah. Why did I do this? And also, like, there's a whole understory that my father, who's always provided for us, and it's never asked me for anything except to be a good person, be good to your mother and your brother and you know he came to me my mother's had cancer a few times and i was working as an attorney i wasn't making great money at the time i wasn't like i don't mean to compare but yeah, I wasn't you're not destitute no no i was not destitute absolutely not but i didn't have tons of expendable income or anything like that and so my father said listen could you lend me money and my father never asked me for anything before and he ended it by saying and this is where i knew i should have not <laughs> he said um and just do me a favor your mom's not well right now don't tell your mother. Ever since that's I'm, always a warning sign. Oh when someone God. says, "Don't tell your mother," since, that's bad. I know. Since I'm a little boy, my mother's always told me, "Jason, if anyone tells you not to tell me, you come right home and you tell me. I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's your father, your brother, whatever it is. You tell me because it can't be anything good." She said that. She said that at your sentencing. I didn't even realize that because I haven't read the transcript. That day was a blur to me. But that's what you know she said, and she's right. So you get arrested, and all these things are going through your mind. Are you thinking about the case? Are you thinking, I'm going to fight this? Are you thinking, I can fight this? Are you thinking, maybe I can flip? Maybe I can make... What, what's going on in your mind? I'm thinking that despite having a law degree, I know nothing about what is going on. You know, one thing is, it's like, you know, lawyers a lot of times want to... You specialize. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, they want to they BS and they want to, you know, answer... If you don't know the answer to something, there's nothing wrong in telling a client or telling someone, I, mm -hmm. I don't know. 
but I'll get you the answer. I'll find the right, right person. So that's what I tried to do. But it was a kind of funny thing. You kind of see how the people come out of the woodwork. I get home and I have a ton of messages from people I haven't spoke to in years that are at these different firms. Like, oh, try to get them as a client because they think I have all this money, which I don't. Right. You know <laughs> you, what I mean? You, you never did any criminal work at all in private never, practice. Never. And this was your first time at a criminal proceeding where, yeah. where you were the person who was being prosecuted? I have never done anything else wrong in my life. My point is yeah. you never assisted someone else in a, no, in a never, criminal proceeding. I never did that. So you get arrested, you go downtown, as they say, and you get presented in front of the magistrate judge. And for determination of bail, what did that feel like standing up and hearing what the charges were? It was, it's very hard to even put into words. All I saw was my parents there looking at me for this, and this is how they're seeing me in a courtroom. They're supposed to see me trying cases, not being a defendant for something I did. It was disappointing. It was scary. It's the worst feeling I've ever felt. So then you leave mm -hmm. and bail was set? Yes. I mean, bail was set very high. My parents had to sign their house. Yeah. Do, to assure your appearance so you wouldn't flee. Fleeing was never an option, right. but yes. Prosecutors are trained to be skeptical no, no, I from understand. time to time. So you think about how you're going to handle your case. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, you chose not to go to trial. Yes. How come? There's a number of reasons. Because, you know, the other people who were charged alongside you, several of them did go to trial. Yes. I knew I did something wrong, and I was always taught if you do something wrong, you own up to it, right? I wanted to plead guilty at my arraignment, as crazy as that sounds. Basically, yeah. when they were That's rare. Very few people do that. But it happens. Well, I understand. But, but I was told it never happens. So I had a different... You know, the, I'm talking about the arraignment on the... On the indictment. When they, when they, no, on the amended indictment. Okay. Because we were arrested on a complaint. Right, just so people understand, there are various stages sometimes in a prosecution... Initially, you were arrested on a complaint obtained by probable cause from a magistrate judge. Then later, to proceed in a criminal case, you know this as a lawyer, but some of the listeners don't, you have to obtain an, an indictment from the grand jury within a period of time. And we did that, and then sometimes you can add details or charges in a superseding indictment, and you're saying you were thinking about pleading guilty upon being arraigned on the superseding indictment. And they could also eliminate details that they come to find from cooperators and stuff that weren't true, like what happened in our case. They Correct. were certain, yeah. Yeah, so I, I so why So why didn't you? Did, did your lawyer didn't want you to do that? My lawyer told me I absolutely can't. It'd be nuts. You, it's not the way things are done. You don't do that. But I said, I don't want to get up in court and say, you know, not guilty when I when I know I am guilty. I'm not guilty to everything they're saying, but I'm, but I'm guilty. I'm guilty and I want it over as quickly as possible. I want to make amends and start moving on with my life. Nope, it's not the way things are done. You can't do that. You look like a fool. And to be honest, you know, after getting to know Judge Sullivan a little bit better, I strongly feel that had I done what I wanted to do, it might have gone better for you. I think it would have went much better for me. But at the same time, you have to understand, I'm going through the worst point in my life. You hire an attorney and you figure they have your best interests at heart and they're not going to advise you wrong or, you know, put their interests before yours. And I stopped, I stopped, trusting myself and my instincts because I thought, oh my God, what did I do? So I started to second guess everything and just started to listen to other people. When I started to listen more to my gut it, and it took a long time for me to be confident enough to do that again, things started going much better. Like, you know, when I wrote that letter to Judge Sullivan, right away I started panicking. I'm like, oh my God, I, I didn't ask the attorneys because I know they would tell me not to do it. When you started to enter the conspiracy to engage in insider trading, what was your gut telling you then? <sighs> should you have listened to your gut then? I should have listened to my gut then, but I was... I'm not going to make excuses. I should have listened to my gut then. I'm learning from this because I've never had this kind of conversation with somebody who's gone through the process that was initiated by my office. So, and I want the listeners to understand. Yeah. You know, they, they get to hear a lot from me 
about what it's like to be a prosecutor. They have heard from other prosecutors and law enforcement officials on the show, the chief of police. But you know, we want to hear your, your perspective, what was going through your head. Well, the first thing is you don't want to be one. You do not want to be a criminal defendant. Right. Do everything you can and make the right decisions. Lesson number one. Lesson number one. Right. Lesson number two would be accept responsibility and acknowledge what you did and own it. You know, I, I get people that reach out to me sometimes through other channels and they're going through a similar situation. They want to know about my experience and what I think, you know, not the legal questions, but just how to handle it emotionally and things like that. And I said, the quicker you're honest with yourself, you know, the better it's going to be for everyone. Explain what you meant by um, why you thought maybe it would have gone better for you had you pled guilty earlier. Because a lot of people legitimately question, particularly in the local prosecutor's offices, this idea of um, being coerced into pleading. And you think your case is an example of that. I, I do, because when Judge Sullivan spoke and my attorney spoke and he said that, you know, there were proffer sessions, there was offers to cooperate with certain things, you know, right away, the prosecutors already had their people. So so eventually you enter into a plea agreement with the U.S. Attorney's Office, with uh, the assistant U.S. Attorneys in my office, and then you show up for the plea in front of Judge Sullivan. Yes. What did that feel like? What was going through your head and how did that unfold? Was, you know, it was scary. It's scary. It's scary. You're in federal court. I had never been in federal court before, you know, with the exception of the stuff for this case. It's scary. It's serious. It's scary. It's did you have Did you have family come? I didn't want anyone there for my plea. I don't think I did. They all wanted to come. They wanted to come to everything. But I, I literally, I felt more than anything, I, I still, it's this sense of embarrassment. It's embarrassing. And it's something that, you know, hasn't even faded a little bit. So just going back to the guilty plea so people understand sure. what, what has to happen at a guilty plea? You have to do an allocution. Yeah. So the allocution is what? That's when you... So you have to get up and you have to stand up and they like to do it to mobsters and have them admit about the coast of Well, they do it. They do it. They do it for everyone. <laughs> yes. So that, so that the judges, so people understand, you know, a guilty plea is not where, in federal court at least, is not a person comes in, you sign on the line, which is dotted, then you, you walk out and you get a, a sentencing date set. Among other things, the judge wants to make sure that you're making the decision voluntarily. You get asked a lot of questions about you know, whether you're on medication, whether the plea agreement has been explained to you, whether you're of sound mind and body, you know, to make sure that you're... They're locking you in. They're, they're locking you in. Well, they want to make sure that, you know, you're doing this because you are... Of your own volition. Guilty. That's it. And then the allocution is there so that the judge can hear you in your own words. And you can write it out in advance. I don't know if you did or not. No. Can hear in your own words what you did that causes you to believe you should plead guilty. And you did that. I did. Did you plan in advance what you would say? No. Do you remember what you did say in general? I don't. I've not looked at that in a while. And like I said, it's a scary moment and you're you're sitting there. But I, I said that I was I made a horrible choice and that, you know, I think the term that I use is saying that my short lived life of crime is over, Your Honor. I guarantee you that. And, you know, that's one of the things I remember, but I that's what I remember. Yeah. And then do you remember that the sentencing date was set? Yes. But you remained on bail pending yes. your sentencing. And how much time did you have between the plea and the sentencing, do you recall? I think the plea was in April 21st of 2011, and the sentencing was August 31st of 2011. Now, because other co-defendants that I wanted nothing to do with decided to take their case to trial, it really stunk that I had to sit around and wait for them to be finished before I could be sentenced. The sitting around process was the absolute worst time of my life. It was horrible. To the point where it's, I'm telling you, it was a relief when I finally got to yeah. check in. Look, it can be done more quickly. And, I, you know, 
I kept asking. There was miscommunication between and among people, but as a prosecutor, generally speaking, if someone wanted to plead guilty quickly, I was not against that. So let's go back to your your mental state after you plead guilty. And now you have to think about how you're going to advocate for yourself on your own behalf with respect to sentencing. And so you were prepared to accept responsibility for being guilty of the crime of insider trading. But, you know, naturally, you weren't prepared to accept the need for you to go to prison. And so you made an argument that you should just get probation, right? Yes. Okay. How did you think about the process by which you would persuade the judge to give you a lenient sentence? Because we'll get to the sentencing in a moment. And it was a fairly extraordinary proceeding where you had a lot of supporters there. How did you go about organizing the arguments and the supporters in the months where your sentencing was pending? Well, you're saying it was my decision, but like I said, and listen, I, I played a part in it, but it's the attorneys. I okay. follow the advice of the attorneys. And again, maybe that wasn't the right tact and maybe I should have said, no, you know, I don't want to do that. But I can tell you one thing, you know, these are clients and people that I love that have always respected me. And it's an embarrassing thing to even, I didn't even want to ask. I didn't want to ask these people that. I'm there to help them. I don't want to make more work for them and have them have to write letters and do this and do that. It's embarrassing. And it's not something I wanted to do. But then at the same time, when you're sitting there and it's the worst moment of your life and you're nervous, it was almost like I was at my own funeral. And usually if you're- Because these people are standing up and saying- These people are standing up and saying the most amazing, nicest things and things that like people aren't, you know, People don't always express their feelings. You always hear stories about, you know, well, I wish when they were here, I would have told them this. This was like an extraordinary thing where they were, I was actually hearing how all these people felt about me. As if you had as, passed. As, <laughs> no, no, really. Right. It, was, it, was, it yeah. was seriously as if I had passed. I reread the sentencing transcript this morning in anticipation of this interview. And it goes on for many, many, I think it's 95 pages. Person after person speaking up for you. So I, I have a sense of what you're talking about. You had clients who showed up in court, and you know, not every judge allows everyone to speak so much. Often when they're victims, victims have you know a right to speak. A judge can, in his discretion, cut things short. But Judge Sullivan allowed a lot of people to speak on your behalf. I want to go through some of those folks and what was going through your head more specifically when you heard them talk. But let's start with the clients. You had people get up, and knowing that you had committed a crime, accepted responsibility for it, that you should have known better, maybe better than other people because you were actually an officer of the court as a lawyer admitted to practice in New York. How did it feel to you when the clients got up to talk and do you have a memory of something that touched you more than other things when your client spoke about how you should get a lenient sentence? Well, yeah, there's two that stand out to me very, very much. There's a lady named Marva. I don't want to give her full name. You know, and these aren't, you know, I know a lot of people get their clients through family and friends and stuff like that. All my business was basically through word of mouth. You know what? I always liked the ones that had another attorney before they came to me because then they could appreciate me even more. Like I was fanatical. I wouldn't leave the office until every phone call was returned. And I really did a good job for them. I'm confident to say that. In my practice of law, I could tell you that in my practice of law, I had never done anything wrong. I had never done nothing but a great job for every client. I represent thousands and thousands of clients every year. I've never had a bar complaint filed against me ever by any client. I did a great job for my clients. But the manner in which they spoke to me, especially Marva got up, like I said, she was referred by another client and she came into the office and we just hit it off and I listened to her and I talked to her and I cared about her case and I cared about her. What do you remember that she said about you at the sentencing? 
just that I was a good person, that I went above and beyond for her, that everyone makes mistakes, and that, I don't like to use that word mistakes because Judge Sullivan gave it to me and saying it's a difference between a mistake and a choice, and he's right, it was a choice. But then it was funny when I met with him in his chambers, he used the word mistake and I corrected him. I said, Judge, don't say that <laughs> word. It's a, it's, a, it's a choice. Remember, and he laughed. He goes, ah, oh, you're too hard on yourself. Imagine that. Yeah. Judge Sullivan telling me I'm being too hard on myself. <laughs> um, but she spoke amazingly. And the other one that really stands out is from a case that I was most proud of in my entire time I practiced law. There's a lady and her name is Kathy Calpalpo. She reminds me of my mom. And I told her that right away. So it's immediately when she came into the office and I was this young attorney, didn't have gray hair at the time. And she came in and it was a very unique case. Her husband died of cancer and it was her high school sweetheart like my parents were. And he had died from a very rare form of cancer. It was Burkett's lymphoma. And there's only two ways you get Burkett's lymphoma. It's either radiation exposure or it's genetic. Now, she had been bounced around every attorney throughout the office. There's no way. And she got referred over me somehow. And she literally had boxes and boxes of records. So I look at her and I go, okay. So we go through the whole thing. And I said, okay. Let me go through everything. I said, give me a week or two. I promise I'm going to go through every page. And I call her up and I said, listen, I think we can make a case of this for get you the death benefits that you and your kids deserve. I ended up finding like through all these documents, like the aha moment, I found one page that showed that he, a week before he, he passed away, no one even realized he had done the genetic testing and it was negative. Turns out he worked at Indian Point Nuclear Power Plant. He wasn't an employee of Entergy. He was an outside plumber. So we brought this case and we won it. And she got up and explained to her that the only reason her kids were able to go to college was because I brought this case and I did this for her and I walked her through everything, every step of the way and the kindness I showed her. And I still speak to her all the time. Right. And she believed in you too. She does. Yeah. So I was most moved in reading the transcript, hearing your mom speak. And, you know, I guess moms have that effect on people. Absolutely. How did you feel? She didn't have anything prepared. No. She got up, she spoke from the heart and the judge acknowledged multiple times, you know, told your mother to take her time, that it's, you know, it's hard to speak in court even if you're the lawyer. And certainly if you're not used to speaking in court and certainly in a circumstance like that, your mom talked about what kind of kid you were and how you never got in trouble, except for the one time when you got in trouble for shooting spitballs, I guess. Oh, and she, and she, she told that story. <laughs> Listen, there's no video of that. Yeah. I'm, I'm neither admitting nor denying. <laughs> yeah. You might've wanted to, you should have pled guilty to that long ago. <laughs> I guess you said this a little bit already, how you were embarrassed for your parents, but you know, you're sitting there and your mother's talking about you in this context where it's almost like your funeral and you're having a sort of out-of-body experience and hearing your clients talk. What was it like to hear your mother talk about you and then your father also? I have the best parents. Like literally I couldn't, if I handpicked them, I couldn't pick better parents. And my dad's like the guy behind the scenes, you know, he takes care of everything. But if I need anything, I call my dad right now, dad, I need you to come pick me up. He wouldn't ask any questions. He'd be here. My mom is the one that sat with me and my brother and, and did everything like every day, every sport. Like my mom's a type where, you know, in high school you start, you don't want your parents around. I played a lot of sports always, you know, varsity sports and stuff like that. So it'd be like, ma, you know, listen, I don't know. You know, I'm a freshman on the varsity team. I don't know if I want you at the uh, games. Uh, and you could see it was like, you know, I don't want to hurt her feelings, but you know, you want to be cool. So literally I'd, I'd be playing and then all of a sudden in the corner, like from the one corner or whatever it is, I'd see her, you know, not sitting with the other parents and other people and be like off to the side. She still just always wanted to be there. She's never missed a sport. Still to this day, like prison is nothing. But you're sitting there waiting to get sentenced and, you know, the suspense, if that's the right word, must have been difficult because you have no idea. You know, the sentencing guidelines no are idea. not mandatory anymore. And the judge, this judge in particular, 
take some pride in saying that he doesn't follow the sentencing guidelines when he doesn't think they're appropriate. He said that specifically at your sentencing. Yeah. He's like, I often go below the sentencing guidelines. The guidelines in your case, I think were- He goes were, above as well. Yeah. The guidelines in your case were in the range of three to four years, I recall. 36, 37 to 46 months. 37 to 46 months was what the guidelines prescribed. Did you have a thought as to what you thought you were going to get? Or did you just put it out of your mind? I'm just, you know, I so you're thought... sitting there. The, the purpose of the proceeding is for a judge who is wearing a black robe and sitting elevated in a courtroom. You know, we've talked about this on the show. And what I feel about that is I think it's the most difficult thing that any member of the legal profession ever has to do, decide how many days, months, and years someone should be separated from their liberty for a crime they committed, and in your case, admitted that they did. But the person for whom it's the most difficult thing is you, is the defendant. How did you cope with that? Uh, were you hoping for something, or were you just sort of leaving it to I the judge? I didn't want to pin my hopes on anything. I really thought that the likelihood of me getting a year and a day, as they like to give, was fairly high, I thought. Did you research anything or know anything about oh, this? I, the, I'm, the, a, I'm a researcher. Yeah, so, 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 so you know that Judge Sullivan is not the lightest sentencer. Yes. I know that he's a stern man. I mean, he, he's, but it's funny because as I was in the courtroom, you know, watching him handle cases and things that way. And the, you know, a few times that we were in court, it was almost like I'm sitting there and he's very organized, very well thought out. You could tell he's read every piece of paper and something that's there. And I remember thinking sometimes twice, sometimes twice. And I remember sitting there going, if I was an attorney with a case, I, I wish I was able to appear before judges like him. Right. You know, you'd be a judge I'd probably love to appear for. Me being organized, him being organized, and, you know? <laughs> In different circumstances. Yeah, you know, abso you have, absolutely different circumstances. You could have organized your files together. So then he asks you to stand and he imposes a sentence of 36 months. Yeah. Which is more than you expected. Mm -hmm. How'd you feel at that moment? I didn't feel good. Um, I felt scared. I mean, you don't know what to expect. More than for myself, I felt for my family and my loved ones. Like I think your fiance also, your girlfriend, or yeah. I think she was your yeah. fiance at the time, also spoke about the interest that you and she had in starting a family sooner rather than later, which would be put off. Did you think you were being treated unfairly in getting that sentence? I did something wrong. And, and listen, it's the plea that I signed. It was a month under the plea, a month under the plea agreement. I accepted that those could be the terms. Now, listen, I could have gotten probation. In fact, you, you, know, you also could have gotten, you could have gotten five years, five years, right? Yeah. Did you feel angry or disappointed? What, what was the disappointed? Yeah. I'm angry. The only person I'm angry with is myself. I messed up and I'm the person that doesn't mess up. And I messed up. I put myself in that position. And you see this when you're away. A lot of people fail to ever take responsibility that they put themselves there. Lots of people blame everyone but themselves. I don't blame anyone. They blame but the other myself. people for the cops for entrapping them. They blame their co-conspirators for brainwashing them. Yeah. They blame their parents for not raising them well. They blame a lot of other people. And those are the people that'll reoffend and, and probably be back where they are. You got to acknowledge what you did. You got to own it. People make mistakes. And that's the thing. It's just because I made this mistake doesn't change all the good that I've done. And, and the fact that I know that I'm a good person. I know my parents raised a good person and I know I'm a good person just because I did something stupid and I said, you know, yes to something. 999 out of a thousand times I say no to. And I got the punishment. I think I handled it as good as anyone possibly can. So then you stood up. You get to stand up at your sentencing as well and get to address the court. Mm. Did you prepare what you were going to say? Broad strokes you didn't read a statement a little bit but then i went off of it okay. i just couldn't what was, was what, what were you what was important for you to convey to the court because it's fresh in my mind because i just read it yeah it's so not it's, fresh in mind i wish you um, had told me I well, I'll, well I'll, I'll, I'll remind you. you you said 
it's something you said a second ago. It seemed important to you to persuade the judge that you would never again be in court as a defendant again. If you've spoken to Judge Sullivan, and I think mm-hmm. you might have, I have not too long ago. I spoke to the judge I before I think this. I spoke to him a few weeks ago, and he knows that. He knows he'll never see me as a criminal defendant again. But do you understand then why? Because he explained it at the sentencing. I know. There's, like a, there's, a, a, there's a goal in deterrence. deterrence I, I, I not, so specific deterrence, which means deterring yeah. you from committing a crime I again, which he thought there was a low likelihood of, just given your demeanor and your interest in accepting responsibility. But there's also a need to deter other people by seeing that you got punished. Do you, do, you, do you buy that reasoning or as a lawyer or as a person? I it's tough because you're, I, you're in the system. So maybe it's an unfair question. But well, you know, he, you made a very good point when you spoke to it. And it was an amazing thing that you said. And that's why, you know, I felt even more comfortable coming when I heard you say this. You had said to Judge Rakoff that, you know, I could never be the one to determine someone's liberty and what's being taken away from them. And specifically what you said, and this is what really moved me, was you said the difference between six and seven years, I don't know. I don't want to be responsible if that seventh year is the one that's going to make him miss his kid's college graduation. And it shows that you're, you're really giving that consideration. And the fact that you are giving that consideration, maybe it is something you should be doing. I know you don't <laughs> want to do it, but it should be something. Yeah, I think, it, I think it would, you know, would think about how prosecutors are supposed to advocate for sentencing. And I did it because I think there's a need for uniformity and punishment and deterrence and all of that. But there are some things that you're constitutionally interested in doing and some things not. Every judge who's done it says the sentencing is the hardest part of their job because you know, they're human beings and they see the family there. It, it's tough for a judge standing there, not as tough as it is for the person obviously being sentenced, to see and be moved by your mother. I mean, I was moved reading the transcript today and I'm an outside party who has a podcast and a, and a teaching gig and the thought of being the person in the robe, having to decide that, it's a, it's a bridge too far for me, maybe. No, and I, but, but the fact that you put that thought in and said that, to me, sp- speaks volumes because there are people like that. There are people that get out of prison two days different, and it, it's a matter of missing their kid's graduation. It's the easiest issue in the world not to care about until it happens to either you or someone you care about. And then by the time that happens, so for me, I'm an advocate for that. And I want to keep doing that and doing things like this because I believe in it. I believe it's a major problem in this country, but it's almost that I'm tainted. You know, one of the reasons having you on the show after getting your letter is for people to understand that, you know, there are some people who commit crimes who are awful people. I think there are evil people in the world. I, I do. And, I agree. And we prosecuted some of those people. And then there are people who are, who are good who make choices, bad choices and commit crimes and they do it willfully and they should be punished for it. But, you know, no prosecutor should think that there's no such thing as a second chance. Not everyone is worthy of redemption or capable of redemption or capable of second chances because of who they are. But I think you have to hold open the possibility for everyone until proven otherwise. And so, you know, I'm, I'm glad to see you're doing well. And this is an odd, inter- <laughs> this is an odd interview for me. My, my name was on the indictment that was used to charge you and but prosecute my, you. Th- the reason that your name was on the indictment is because I did something wrong. So you shouldn't, I mean, the, the, yeah, I no, I don't feel it, but it's a, you know, I'm not, yeah. I'm not apologizing. No, <laughs> you, uh, but it's, you know, it's, 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 it's an important conversation to have. I guess my other question is how did you, did you feel visible in the process? Did you, did you feel that the prosecutors, I promoted those folks and I know them well, and they were, they were terrific lawyers in my office. how did you feel about the prosecutors? I, I felt like I was nobody. Generally, the prosecutors are the prosecutors. I, yeah. I, I was frustrated but, by the, and it's not their fault, yeah. but I was frustrated by the amount of time. Like, I want to get this moving. I want to get right. over with this. And, you know. But, but it's, it's an odd. So when, when you went to a court proceeding, 
you know, prosecutors don't talk to the defendant in part because you're not supposed to talk to the defendant because you're counsel. represented yeah. by counsel. And, you know, when I walked in and I talked to the lawyer, I wouldn't even look at the defendant who was a person and a human being. You don't shake their hand. You don't say hello to them in part because you, you set up this wall. And I think it actually comes out of a good uh, impulse, but it can seem weird. And I'm wondering how that, it is how that's, it's, it's sort of like being it's... in an elevator when you don't talk to somebody, you know, you don't say hello to the person next to you. And I remember the first time I went to court with somebody and saw how that person was talking to the lawyer, didn't even make eye contact with the defendant. And I, I came to understand why that is, because you never want to look like you're trying to engage the person who's represented by counsel. Like that's a strict rule you follow, but it's odd. It's very strange. It's an, it's an odd social interaction. And even though it's not, a, it's not supposed to be social, it's weird. I've, I've actually not asked someone, what, what's it like? The only reason everyone's there is because of you, because of what you had done. And everyone's trying to make a decision about how to deal with you based on your conduct. And you're the one person people are not looking at and talking to. What does that feel like? It's, it's just a, it's strange. It's odd and it's strange. It was, I used to hate going because you, you don't, you feel like nobody. You're, you essentially, you feel, I feel like nobody. Did you feel some relief after you pled guilty or after you were sentenced? Yeah. Did I your anxiety I, level go down even though your prison sentence was still pending? Well, you know, after you plead guilty and I get three years in prison, I have seen, you know, Oz on HBO. <laughs> you don't, you know what I mean? <laughs> you don't, you don't know, you know, you're, you're a little scared to go, you know, but I think growing up in Brooklyn and going to public schools in Brooklyn, which I think I had a really good education, um, I think prepared me for that. I'm, I'm able to deal with all sorts of people from all walks of life. And, you know, to say it wasn't scary, I'd be lying. So the, so the night before you have to report, where were you assigned to serve your sentence? Well, that's another problem with this whole system. I'm, I'm assigned in Morgantown, West Virginia, eight and a half hours away. Far away from your family. Yeah, it's, it's, it really tears families apart. And luckily I didn't have kids at the time, but, you know, people couldn't get visits from their family because they, first of all, they can't afford it yeah. to fly down to places. I don't disagree places. with you. You know, it's funny. We, um, people think the prosecutors are responsible for everything. No, no, I know We're you're not. It's the, the Bureau of Prisons decides in its own bureaucratic way. And look, and they have reasons and they're overburdened and they're underfunded and they're not in the facilities because nobody wants prisons built. But, you know, anytime my folks were in court and there was a request to be assigned to a particular location to be close to family, I don't think that anyone in my office ever objected to yeah. that. So the night before you're supposed to report... Do you prepare in any particular way? No. I mean, there's really no way. I, like, honestly, I'm an organizer, so I tried to organize everything and, you know, had my mom take care of this. I made sure that anything, you know, my girlfriend at the time, my fiance, wanted she go to my parents for that, that was needed. I really tried to coordinate things, try to organize things. You know, it was obviously sad. I mean, there's nothing. I mean, were, you scared? were you scared? Yeah, of course I was scared. Yeah. Um, you don't know what to expect. Seems like an odd question to ask, uh, and I don't, I don't mean it lightly. But how was prison? First of all, it's it's horrible. Like no one wants to be there. It's essentially the way I look at it is like you ever go to Costco and you see all those pallets that you're like, ah, eh, when are they ever going to use those? It's literally prison is storage for human beings. It's what it is. And you know, the good things that have come from things like this is you have a new appreciation for certain things. Like when I sit on the couch and I could hold a remote control, it's an amazing thing. When I could eat what I want and I, you know, I'm in a restaurant and I see someone breaking a waiter's chops and sending their food back, I'm like, oh, if you only knew what you're privileged enough to eat. But in and of itself, it's uncomfortable. 
You ever, you know, you ever have where, you know, it's the end of the week and, you know, laundry is, uh, you know, your, your favorite stuff that you usually like to wear is already used up. So you throw on something that you really don't like to wear and you're uncomfortable all the time. That's kind of what prison is like. You're just never comfortable all the time. And if you're comfortable there, then you're probably to come back there because there's a problem. But it was the least, I... It was, what you're saying is that the painful part was the realization that your parents were going to be disappointed. Yes. Not the jail time. Parents would be disappointed. I did, lost did my th- law license. Did you think a lot in prison? Oh, yeah. I, I thought. I read. I read maybe 500 books. What was the best book you read in prison? I enjoyed the Steve Jobs book. I really enjoyed that. That's a thick book. It took yeah. me a few days. <laughs> um, but, you know, honestly, out there, because you're dealing with such crazy stuff, I read a lot of um, fiction, <laughs> a lot of Stuart Woods, a lot of- um, Crime fiction? Yeah, like John Corey uh-huh. and uh, Mitch Rapp and those type of books. But- you know, I played, you know, a lot of pickleball, you know, literally that's, was, is that really punishment? I'd say to myself, I go, listen, I'm, of course it's uncomfortable and you don't want to be there. And also I'm a city guy and you put me in the middle of West Virginia. It's not for me. Believe me, the trees and this and that are not for me. I like the city, you know, it's, it's horrible. And listen, I, I saw plenty acts of cruelty and nastiness when I was there. And I also saw acts of extreme kindness, typically between other inmates, inmates to inmates that, you know, someone would go in through something and you'd see kindness. And then also like, it, it's weird because being there to know who's going to come back are the people that never admitted what they did. And the people that you just need to watch someone when they don't know they're being watched by an authority figure. And you could tell in two seconds if those people are going to be people that are going to come back to prison. I also differentiate the white collar people because, you know, people in prison, they saddle up to you. Oh, you're white collar. I'm white collar or whatever it is. I prefer to be around the drug offenders that never had any chances in life. And you kind of understand why they ended up where they ended up. Because to me, I separate out the white collar people a little bit in that there's the white collar people that are victimless crimes, which I'm not saying are right. Obviously it's wrong. But then there's the white collar people that sat down with someone and shook their hand and, and took their money. took their money. And now their kids can't go to the college that they're supposed to. They have people that are working into their 70s and 80s when their nest egg is stolen. If you could look someone in the eye and steal from them and change their life, I think that they're worse than anyone and that you should have to suffer and be away for as long as those people that you ripped off are suffering. You know, the whole reason we're here is because you wrote me a letter and I read part of the letter earlier. Why was it important to you? Like, Why do you care at all what I think of you or your crime or what you've done since your crime. And we never met before. I was never. never in court. I had nothing to do with your prosecution other than overseeing it. I uttered your name publicly when we announced the arrests. Why did you care what I thought? Because it's the person that I am. It matters to me. Your name was on that indictment. You know, Judge Sullivan's name was on the order sending me to prison. And it does matter. This is the person that my parents raised that you always do right and if you do something wrong you try to make amends for it and you try to make sure that people understand that you are remorseful that you know you messed up and you know this is how i'm going about trying to fix it and i know i'm not a bad person and i know i did something stupid and it was dumb and and i wish i could take it back i can't take it back i could only do things like this and and show that i'm really remorseful and still to this day i think i'm harder on myself than any sentence or anything could be and you know hopefully i've changed your opinion of me hopefully you recognize that i am remorseful that i am a good person and sometimes good people do stupid things 
Jason Gofarb. Thank you for coming. I know it was difficult for you, and I appreciate that you came and you were honest about your experience, and I think people learn a lot from this. I've learned a lot from this, and I hope you don't regret telling your story. No, I definitely don't. Great. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Good luck with everything. I appreciate it. So this is the point in the show where I talk about something that struck me in the news. And this past week, there's been a lot of talk, appropriately, about North Korea. We're taping this on a Tuesday morning. And so the summit is still ongoing, and there's appropriate amount of attention being paid to that. All sorts of other things with respect to pardons and the Mueller investigation have gone on. But there's another bit of news that maybe is not national in scope, but really important here locally in New York. And to put it in context, I want to take you back three years to when I was the United States attorney. And we did a lot of cases relating to corruption, trying to improve people's lives, improve public safety. But there were some things that we did that were for ordinary people who no one else seemed to care much about. In New York City, over 400,000 low and middle income people live in public housing. And that housing is run by the New York City Housing Authority, otherwise known as NYCHA. And they have one obligation to the people who live in those housing projects. And the simple requirement is that they provide, quote, decent, safe, and sanitary housing, close quote. Not luxury accommodations, not mansions, not, you know, palatial views, but simply decent, safe, and sanitary housing. And as we began to investigate when I was a U.S. attorney a few years ago, that wasn't the case. They're also supposed to certify to the Department of Housing and Urban Development that they are providing decent, safe, and sanitary housing to the 400,000 people living in those spaces. We began to discover that there were problems with lead paint, there were problems with mold, there were problems with elevators, there were problems with heat, there were problems with false certifications to HUD, and we started an investigation. And I am pleased to see after being gone for a long time, that that investigation continued under June Kim as the acting U.S. attorney, and as well under Jeff Berman, the current United States attorney. And as announced this week, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York has entered into an agreement after filing an 80-page devastating complaint against NYCHA to make sure that the city and the housing authority do what they're supposed to do, do right by the people who live in public housing, in New York City. In the course of their investigation that went on long after I left, they found instances of lead paint that poisoned children, disgusting and harmful and unchecked mold, insufficient heat, as I said, rats, roaches at epidemic levels in some places. In fact, in connection with the investigation of NYCHA, I personally went and visited housing projects and saw with my own eyes the dilapidated state of affairs and the encroaching mold that had no business being there. So it's especially gratifying to see a great result in this case. And the worst part is, as the office's investigation concluded, that there was a massive cover-up about this conduct, that people at NYCHA lied about the problems. They made statements to prevent inspectors from finding out the truth. They built false walls to hide dilapidated rooms. They sometimes shut off the water to hide leaks when inspectors were going to show up. They had a whole bag of tricks to conceal problems from inspectors and made false certifications on a regular basis about the habitability of the housing they were providing to hundreds of thousands of people in New York City. So 
What does this mean for those people? Well, according to the consent decree that was filed this week in court, the city of New York is required to spend $1 billion in support of NYCHA over the next four years and an additional $200 million in capital funding in the following four years to fix the mold, to fix the elevators, to fix the lead paint, prevent the continued poisoning of children, and to stop lying about it. And also the imposition of a federal monitor to make sure that people are doing what they're supposed to be doing and doing right by the citizens of New York City. So congratulations again to all the people in the civil division of the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. They do so much amazing, often unheralded work protecting the environment, protecting prisoners' rights, protecting civil rights. I want to give a specific shout-out to the assistant U.S. attorneys who worked on this case and are bringing some measure of relief to lots of people that maybe folks don't think about. And they are Rob Yalen, Monica Fulch, Jacob Lillywhite, Talia Kramer, and Sharanya Mohan. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Jason Goldfarb. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Chris Berube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, Jake McAbee, and Vinay Basti. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.